I want to dedicate this evening to the memory of Mary Lou Conrad because, as you will remember, she was with us through most of this series with her infectious smile, her happy Christian disposition, and her delight to participate when she felt able and her delight to bring you the goodies at refreshment time. She will be missed. And so, with sympathy to her beloved husband, who is with us, and also to the Bothell congregation, who has lost a magnificent Christian servant, we, we commend her and her memory to the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, we're looking at Jeremiah 52, the last chapter of this magnificent book, and begin with a question to ponder, namely, what is the purpose of this chapter? And so I'd like your responses. I had suggested you might want to think about this over the week, and so I'm wondering what you have come up with. Any suggestions? That's either learned silence or (laughs) fearful intimidation. (laughs) Arthur, your, your glasses went up. Thank you. I Okay, so you are persuaded Jeremiah didn't write it. It says that. It says that. Where does it say that? At the end of chapter 51. Very good. All right. This is one reason we know Jeremiah did not write it. Good, Art. And Art is suggesting it's kind of a fill-in to give us the rest of the story. Any other suggestions? Well, maybe, go ahead, Ben. To me, it looked like just like a recapitulation of the destruction of children, which was a great, uh, a great historical event. The city was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and the detail of what all was carried off. Of the Good, so because of the significance. has been predicting. Here's the account of that collapse. So it fits into the overall narrative of the prophecy itself. Okay, anything else? Maybe it's just an afterthought. Judgment. (laughs) Judgment upon God's people. Haven't we had enough of that already? (laughs) Well, it, it encapsulates the finality of it. Okay, the finality of judgment. So I'll, I'll, uh, you're, you're on the coattails of Ben Tavern there. 
you're in good company. Both of you are in good company. Uh, not an afterthought. Anybody raise your hand for an afterthought? Just some guy came along after the point, after it was all over and after the book was finished, and he just, oh, well, I'll just stick this little appendix on here. No, I don't think we'll go that way. That's, of course, what the liberals do with it. <clears throat> but uh, <clears throat> good suggestions. Uh, let's hold off on uh, my own suggestion until the end. And these suggestions are not definitive because, of course, we don't know for sure. We're not told. So what we're doing is we're attempting to judge from within the context of the, of the prophecy and from the narrative uh, that we've outlined to date. Now, this chapter is based upon a preceding chapter or two chapters from 2 Kings 24, verse 18 through chapter 25, verse 21, and then to verses 27 to 30 of that 25th chapter of 2 Kings. In fact, you'll note that it's almost a duplicate narrative. So there is a precedent for what we're reading here, and it is found at the end of uh, 2 Kings. Now, we've also gone through this before. Um, Ben, when did we go through this before? Okay, we've been we've been through this before. In chapter 39, we actually had a shortened or what I would say is an abridged, condensed or succinct version of the destruction of Jerusalem. In other words, this narrative is an expanded version of a more carefully focused narrative and brief description of the destruction of Jerusalem in Jeremiah chapter 39. And we're not done. It is also parallel with some very interesting differences to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 10 to 23. Now, there is something missing, so I want you to keep your finger here in Jeremiah 52. And let's turn back to 2 Kings chapter 25 for a moment. And whoever finds verse 22 in 2 Kings 25, if you'll read it out for us, we'll ask the question what is missing and we'll answer it from that particular verse. 2 Kings 25, verse 22. Now as for the people who were left in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, over them. All right. Now, this narrative, which goes to verse 26 of this chapter, 2 Kings 25, is dealing with Gedaliah. And uh, Margie, what happened to Gedaliah? Who, 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 when he was appointed over them, what position did he have? He was governor, right. He becomes governor after the destruction of the city. And what happens to him? Anyone? I think he was killed, wasn't he? Yes, he's assassinated. All right? All right. Now, that is not present in chapter 52 of Jeremiah. Why is it missing? Why is it missing? Why is it missing from Jeremiah 52? 
In other words, it's present in 2 Kings 25, but it's not present in Jeremiah 52. It's omitted. Well, it was already a huge detail. Exactly. So we don't need it. Very good. In Jeremiah chapter 40, verses 13 through 41, verse 3, we have what is described there in 2 Kings 25, 22 to 26. So, as Kay points out, there's no need to duplicate it. It's already well known to the readers. Now, there is something unique about this uh, chapter, that is Jeremiah 52. Uh, Let's take a look at verse 11, and when somebody has it, just read it out, please. 52.11. Then he blinded the eyes of Zedekiah, and the king of Babylon bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon and put him in prison until the day of his death. Right, now there's a, there's a feature there, there's a comment there that is unique to Jeremiah 52. You won't find it in the description of Zedekiah's capture and the death of his sons and his own being carried off to Babylon. You won't find it in any of those other places, namely Second Chronicles 36, Jeremiah 39 and 2 Kings 25. What particular little detail is there in uh, verse 11 of Jeremiah 52 that is unique? Terry, do you have a suggestion? Well, I'm guessing the bronze fetters. No, that is that is also found elsewhere. That is correct. The imprisonment of Zedekiah is placed here. It is unique to Jeremiah 52, and now we ask ourselves why. Why is the fact that he is put in prison, contained here in Jeremiah 52, put in prison until when? Notice verse 11. Until his death. Oh, go ahead, Kay. Before, so. True, but but why why put this detail in the narrative? Yes, that is true, but <clears throat> why here? Why not Second Kings twenty five? Why not Second Chronicles thirty six? Why here? Mm, that's true. Although it's possible that he's looking back on this and narrating, narrating it after the fact. Go ahead, Mark. Well, here's a guess. The person writing this was in Babylon and knew this, whereas the others didn't. That's possible. <clears throat> Who doesn't die? Alive until the day of his death when he's freed at the end of this chapter. So notice the contrast. The contrast with the last word about Zedekiah in verse 11 is the Hebrew word mot, death. The last word in Jeremiah 52, the last word of the last verse is not death, even though it is in your English translations. In the Hebrew Bible, it's hayam. Or Hayah, rather, which means life. Notice the contrast. Contrast between the death of Zedekiah and the life of Jehoiakim. 
Right, that's uh, my suggestion as to why that little detail is there. It's there for the point of contrasting the destiny of the two individuals. Now, one other part of this 52nd chapter, which is unique, verses 22 to 30, 28 to 30, I'm sorry. Nowhere else in the Old Testament do we find these three verses, not in 2 Kings 25, not in 2 Chronicles 36, not obviously in Jeremiah 39. This is the only place where this detail is provided. So although there are similarities between Jeremiah 52 and previous texts, particularly 2 Kings 25 and 2 Chronicles 36, there are unique features here. There are elements that are distinctive to the author of this chapter. He may be borrowing upon 2 Kings 25, which is quite likely, but he also has some unique information that is not found in uh, that chapter or in uh, 2 Chronicles 36. All right, now let's begin with verse 1. And if someone would date this for us, uh, could you give us the date of this first verse? 597 B.C. Very good, Ben. Okay, and what happens in 597 B.C.? Besides Zedekiah becoming king. Very good. This is the second siege and captivity of Jerusalem. Jehoiakim is carried off with the queen mother and with others. And who else goes off in 597? Ezekiel. Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel is also carried off in this year. All right, so now we have the succession to Jehoiakim, who is off into captivity, and Zedekiah is on the throne. <clears throat> who is his father? Who is Zedekiah's father? His mother is there, Abutal. Who's his father? Josiah. Josiah is his father. And Josiah is also the father of who else? Well, let's put it this way. Hamutal is the mother of who else? Besides Zedekiah, Jehoahaz, also known as Shalom. Christina, you, you don't allow me to call on you. I hear you just spouting off. Bless your heart. <laughs> You're doing so well. <laughs> All right. So, <clears throat> who, who, who else is descended from Josiah? Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. So, Josiah is the father of... Zedekiah, Jehoahaz, or Shalom, and Jehoiakim. But Hamutol is the mother of Jehoahaz and Zedekiah, but not the mother of Jehoiakim. What's his mother's name? All right, you have to dig that one out. Her name is Zabida. Zabida. And it's in 2 Kings 23-36 if you want to look it up. All right, so... Obviously, Josiah has more than one wife, and uh, these uh, individuals are related, though they're related as half-brothers. All right, now to the second verse. 
And let's turn to Second Chronicles 36 for a moment. Second Chronicles 36, verse 12. And once again, whoever has it, just go ahead and read it out when you get it. Looky there. There's Jeremiah the prophet. All right, now what did Zedekiah do? He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke the word of the Lord. In other words, he did not listen. And that's precisely what Jeremiah says to him in chapter 38, verse 15. You don't need to look that up. But let's go on in Second Chronicles 36 to verses 20 through 22. While we're in Second Chronicles, actually let's read all the way to the end. Second Chronicles 36, 20 to 23. And anyone who has it, simply go ahead. And those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until seventy years were completed. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. And what's the date of that proclamation? 539. All right, now, why Jeremiah here? Here we have Jeremiah three times in Second Chronicles 36. What was the word of Jeremiah? Mark? That they would return. There would be a restoration. Not only would there be a judgment and an exile, but there would be a restoration. So what's the chronicler doing? What's the writer of Chronicles, the chronicler, what's he doing? Showing the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah. So he draws Jeremiah into his narrative. And in fact, he uses him in order to place the contrast between what Zedekiah wouldn't believe and what Cyrus actually fulfills, not that he believed it per se, as biblical or as revelation, but that he was doing it for political purposes. Nonetheless, the chronicler rounds off the account by going back to Jeremiah. So obviously the Chronicles is written after the book of Jeremiah is written because he's looking back upon that event. And so we place the book of Chronicles somewhere in the intertestamental period. Uh, It's pretty hard to date it exactly, but it's looking back over the history of Israel uh, before uh, the period of Ezra, Nehemiah, and perhaps even all the way down to Malachi. All right. Now, in verse 3, we're back to Jeremiah 52 in verse 3. 
In verse 3, it says that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now, let's take a look at a description of this rebellion in Ezekiel 17. You just have to turn forward a couple of pages to Ezekiel 17. And in verse 12, And say to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Say, Behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, took his king and princes, and brought them to him in Babylon. And he took one of the royal family and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath. Who's being described in verse 12 there? Jehoiakim in verse 12, correct. Now, who is being described in verse 13? That's Zedekiah, okay? So here is a description in Ezekiel. In fact, Ezekiel is also referring to this uh, even as he is going through the experience of it. Ezekiel is referring to this uh, after the fact and looking back upon the uh, events themselves namely the replacement of Jehoiakim by Zedekiah. Now, in verse uh, 15, he rebelled against him. Who is the he that rebelled? Zedekiah. Zedekiah, very good. So we're back to what we've also noted in uh, Jeremiah 52, verse 3. He rebelled against him by sending envoys to Egypt. So what's he doing by sending envoys to Egypt? He's entering into an alliance. Correct. So notice in verse 13, he was put under oath to Nebuchadnezzar. He's now rebelled against his oath. He's broken his oath. He betrayed his his loyalty uh, to the king of Babylon, and he is sending diplomatic envoys to Egypt give him horses and troops now why would he do this and when would he do it he takes the throne in Jerusalem in 597 why would he do this and when would he do it he's cowed by Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning enters into an oath with him in 597 Nebuchadnezzar is the ruler of the world, the greatest empire in the world at this time, and yet here is Zedekiah playing footsie with the Egyptians. Why and when? Quite possibly 589. 589 B.C. when Pharaoh Samtik II, or Semeticus II, died. That was Necho II's son. And he was succeeded by a man we've met in the book of Jeremiah, particularly in Jeremiah 44, Pharaoh Hophra. Hophra succeeds his father in 589 B.C. And with the change in Pharaohs and the change of administration in Egypt, Zedekiah becomes bold and he decides to enter into an alliance with Egypt. After all, this new king may be bold enough to go up against Nebuchadnezzar, or so he, uh, uh, he so he thinks. Verse sixteen. Now back to uh, Ezekiel seventeen, verse sixteen. 
As I live, declares the Lord, surely in the country of the king who put him on the throne, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke in Babylon, he shall die. Who was he talking about? Zedekiah again. Okay, he's going to die in Babylon. We've already noted that. Verse 17, And Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in the war when they cast up mounds and build siege walls to cut off many lives. All right, what's that referring to? This is Pharaoh Hophra, Pharaoh of Egypt from 589 to 570 B.C. What's Ezekiel referring to here? Third and last siege of Jerusalem. Okay, what happened? Jerusalem was leveled. Yes, it was leveled, but what about these, this army from Pharaoh? What's he talking about there? During the siege of Jerusalem, 587 to 586 B.C., as a result of having sending, sent Envoys to Egypt, Zedekiah, verse 15. What did the Egyptians do? You remember in Jeremiah 37, they sent an army out of Egypt. And when Nebuchadnezzar's army found that they were uh, being, uh, <clears throat> that there was an army of Egypt moving against them, coming across the Sinai, they lifted the siege of Jerusalem. And that's in Jeremiah 37, verse 5. And having lifted the siege of Jerusalem, they went to meet the Egyptian army. And the Egyptian army, when they saw Nebuchadnezzar's army coming towards them, they turned tail and ran. So much for trusting the Egyptians. Okay, so that's what Ezekiel is describing here, building on what we know from Jeremiah 37, verse 5. And this probably occurred, remember when we discussed this event, when we looked at Jeremiah 37, this probably occurred in 587, perhaps in the summer or fall of 587 B.C., uh, after uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his army had initially built the siege mounds around Jerusalem. All right, so this rebellion, which is described here in Jeremiah 52, verse 3, is expanded upon, expanded upon in Ezekiel 17, It's expanded upon in Jeremiah 37, so we can fill in a little more of the details uh, from those other passages. Uh, Any question about that? Now to verse 4, and let's have a date. The ninth year of Zedekiah's reign. 588 or 87, very good. And who comes according to that verse? Yes, Nebuchadnezzar himself comes uh, before he goes where? He comes to Jerusalem before he goes where? Verse 9. Riblah. To Riblah. Where's Riblah? It's, it's north. It's north. Very good. Okay, that's good enough, Kay. Now, we, you see it on one of the previous maps. Yes, it's up in uh, Syria. All right. Nebuchadnezzar did actually come to the walls of Jerusalem, and then he withdrew himself and established his headquarters at Riblah, where he oversaw the campaign in Jerusalem and probably also a little bit uh, in the Philistine region as well. 
Now he encamps, as verse 4 says, he encamps against the city of Jerusalem. Let's take a look back in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 29. And when someone has it, chapter 50, verse 29, just read it out, please. That's far enough. Thanks, Barnes. Do you notice any irony here? What's the point of Jeremiah 50, verse 29? Who is the object of that verse? Babylon. Babylon. You notice any irony? Yes. What? It will be done to Babylon as as Babylon did to Jerusalem. Very good. What do we call that? The, The payback, yes. The lex what? The Lex what? The Lex what, Ben? The Lex Talionis, yes, the law of retaliation. Uh, Notice, as Babylon did to Jerusalem, chapter 52, verse 4, so it's going to be done to Babylon, chapter 50, verse 29. Encamping against the city of Jerusalem, encamping against the city of Babylon by the Persians. Now, this fourth verse also notice siege walls. <clears throat> now, what do, you, what do you envision? As you think about that verse, what do you envision it as a siege wall? They build another wall around Jerusalem? Carry Maybe a rampart to go over the wall? Very, not necessarily over the wall, but the word rampart that you used is exactly correct. There's no record that the Babylonians built another wall that is like a brick wall or clay wall or anything like that, but that they would pile up mounds of dirt as a siege wall opposite the walls of Jerusalem. And from those mounds, they'd climb up on the top of the mounds and then they'd shoot arrows, try to shoot arrows over the top of the wall or to to pick off people on on the walls themselves. Now, it's Josephus who says that this is what they did. There's no biblical record of them doing this, and yet Josephus has somehow a tradition which he records that that's what Nebuchadnezzar's troops did. They built these mounds or ramparts from which they launched their siege and their warfare against the city. All right, verse 5. Give me a date. Give me a month. Very good. June or July of 586 B.C. Go to the head of the class, okay? Good for you. All right. Now, verse 6 describes famine in the city. I've given you a string of verses which describe that famine. What was terrible about that famine? Anyone? Go ahead, Kay. Cannibalism. Correct. You'll find it in the book of Lamentations in particular. Right? They became so desperate because of the starvation that they started to eat their children and uh, perhaps uh, dead children and eat, eating the corpses in the streets. This is true of siege warfare in general. It's true in, in general of one of the horrors of war and starvation uh, 
it's even been a part of, uh, of recent history, particularly in the Andean plane crash in the late 20th century. Now we come to verse 7 and the phrase between the two walls, which we looked at once before. And if you'll take your packet and turn to the map of Jerusalem that is there, We'll take a look at this once again, because in the outline that I've given to you uh, tonight, in the the photograph of the map that I've given you tonight, it's a little easier to see what may potentially be the two walls in question. Now, in that seventh verse, you'll notice that the phrase, the king's garden, is used. Now, do you find the king's garden on your map? Everybody found it down in the lower right-hand corner. All right, now, as you move up from the King's Garden, you see a kind of dotted line around the G and apostrophe S in Kings, and then you go up to the Fountain Gate, which is above it, and above the F in Fountain Gate, you see another dotted line. Those are two possible outer walls of Jerusalem. And it is conceivable that this phrase between the walls means that Zedekiah and those that came out with him came through that little opening by the F in Fountain Gate and came out through one of the openings in the King's Garden through that other wall. It's possible. We don't know for sure. In fact, there is some debate about what this between the walls means, but here is a map which shows you a possible solution to uh, to what it was. And having gone out that way, then they went towards the east, towards the plains of Jericho, hoping hoping perhaps to get across the uh, Jordan River uh, to the nation of the Ammonites and the execution of Gedaliah by Baalus, the king of Ammon, uh, feeds that suggestion that Zedekiah was on his way to the Transjordan or actually to the Ammonite Transjordanian kingdom in order uh, to take refuge. Any question? All right, to verse 8, and uh, turning just ahead to Lamentations 4, verses 19 to 20. When someone has it, please read it out. Lamentations 4, 19 to 20, with an expansion on Jeremiah 52, verse 8. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the sky. They chased us over the mountains and lay in wait for us in the desert. The Lord's anointed, our very life breath, was caught in their traps. We thought that under his shadow we would live among the nations. Who are they talking about? Who's the Lord's anointed, Art? Don't know the king, perhaps. It's a king. Who is he? Okay. Zedekiah. Ah, it's possibly Zedekiah. In other words, this fits the description of Zedekiah's escape to the east. They pursued us, swift like the eagles of the sky, chased us on the mountains, waited in the wilderness for us. Yes, he was caught, wasn't he? Did the Babylonians know that he was going to do this? 
Did they have a mole inside the city of Jerusalem who told them, you know, you watch on this night, this guy's going to make a mad dash for it. If you hide out there by the plains of the Jordan, you'll snatch him. We don't really know for sure, but there's a very interesting passage in Lamentations which probably reflects upon the escape of Zedekiah. So it fills in a little bit of uh, the drama of what we read in verse 8. Verse 9, it contains that uh, note about the city of Riblah and raises the question, who else had a military camp at Riblah? Nebuchadnezzar does. He's not at the gate of Jerusalem, not on the walls of Jerusalem himself all the time. His army's there. His commander-in-chief, the Nebuchadnezzar is down there. But Nebuchadnezzar isn't always there. He's up in Riblah. Who else was in Riblah? Well, one of the kings was brought there. Yeah. One. Who was it? It could have been Jehoiakim. No? Before. Oh. Who precedes him? Jehoiakim. You're close. Jehoiakim. Is it Josiah? Who's before Jehoiakim? Oh. Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz, yes. And what's his other name? <coughs> Shalom. <coughs> How did he get the rib one? Who's at Riblah? Takes the throne off his head, puts the throne on, uh, puts takes the crown off of Jehoahaz's head, puts the crown on Jehoiakim's head. Who did that? Pharaoh Nico, yes. Pharaoh Nico on his way back from Carchemish, 609 B.C., way back from having killed Josiah at the Pass of Megiddo. And he does that, that is, he unseats Jehoahaz and enthrones Jehoiakim. He does that. Why? So that he can control Judah and Jerusalem. So Judah and Jerusalem are subservient to Egypt because Necho wants a buffer. He wants a buffer state between himself and Babylon. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar has come, actually Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar have come to Carchemish <clears throat> in the north of the Mesopotamian Fertile Crescent. This is an upstart empire and Necho goes up to meet them after killing Josiah. And what happens to Necho's army? Did he beat Nebuchadnezzar? No, he got himself thrashed, so he's on his way back down. He stops at Ribla, has Jehoahaz brought to him, and unseats him, puts Jehoiakim on his throne as his puppet because he wants a state, he wants territory that he controls between himself and Nebuchadnezzar, Nabopolassar, Nebuchadnezzar, and Babylon. All right, so Ribla is this kind of staging area, not only for Nebuchadnezzar, but for Nico II. The staging area, why? Because it's a crossroads of military and commercial traffic. Lots of roads, lots of caravans, lots of soldiers moving through Ribla. So it's kind of like on the hub of the Middle East. And Nebuchadnezzar wants to be in the hub. 
So he can keep his finger on every pie from the time he lays siege to Jerusalem for the last time until the city collapses. <clears throat> All right, so that's where Zedekiah <clears throat> is taken and uh, <clears throat> his eyes are put out and his sons are killed uh, before his eyes, the last thing he sees. All right, <clears throat> uh, now to verse 12, and once again, we want a date. 596 BC. 596? 586. 586. And what month? August. August of 586 BC. And the reason we can date it to August is because of the Chronicles of the Chaldean Kings, which you have seen from time to time in this study, translated by D.J. Wiseman. All right, now that brings us to verse 13, in which the Nebuchadnezzar burns the house of the Lord. What's that? What's the house of the Lord? Whose temple? Solomon's temple is burned. Very good. Burns the house of the king. What's that? That's the palace. Very good. House he burns with fire. All right, now notice your next handout. Your next handout in your packet shows you the house of Ahio and also shows you the so called burnt room. Now, the house of Ahio is so called because of a shard. What's a shard? Piece of pottery, yes, a potsherd, a shard that has this name on it that was found in this house. Now, you'll notice that this house has pillars in the central room which supported the roof. And you'll notice on the left-hand side of those pillars, there are actually steps showing themselves in the diagram, which would have been steps to the rooftop. What would have they done on the rooftop? Cool off. <laughs> that is true, but what else did they do on the rooftop? They sleep up there. They could sleep up there. What else did they do on the rooftop? We'll see danger, I guess. They what? We'll see danger, I, I don't know. No. Not unless they had a view over the wall. Pardon? Uh yes. To what? To idols, yes. They sacrifice incense to Baal on their rooftops. <clears throat> this is something that we refer to when we talk about idolatry here in the book of Jeremiah. Now, there's no necessary proof that in this house that's what's being done, but nonetheless, you see, <clears throat> uh, this is the uh, this is the geography, this is the construction that would lend itself to that. <clears throat> right now, the uh, the house has been excavated since the conclusion of the Six Days War in 1967 when they've extensively excavated the east side of Jerusalem, southeast and eastern side of Jerusalem. And in this burnt room, they found a layer of thick ash. And in that ash layer, those arrowheads which you see uh, uh, pictured below particularly the Scythian arrow, which is on the extreme right-hand side 
of that series of arrowheads. <clears throat> the other arrowheads are flat. The Scythian arrow is distinctively triangular. <clears throat> it has three uh, facets on it and is extremely deadly and, of course, very difficult to pull out once it enters the flesh. Anyway, <clears throat> um, this is an indication of how fearsome was the siege of Jerusalem, how fearsome was the attack, the amount of arrowheads that were discovered in this room, and the amount of ash. There are some stories that say it was three inches thick when they covered it, uncovered it. So the destruction of Jerusalem, and this is all traced to 586. This is the Babylonian destruction. These, these buildings are unearthed as a result of having been destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. <clears throat> they were later on covered over by other rocks and uh, dust enclosures, etc. And it's only as a result of modern archaeology we've gotten underneath that and found and uncovered them so we can see what was there uh, in the 6th century B.C. So it's a very significant archaeological discovery, uh, partly because it verifies this fiery destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the evidence was right there, and uh, particularly uh, these arrowheads, this, this uh, profusion of arrowheads, the amount of firepower that was being uh, uh, poured over the walls of Jerusalem by the Babylonian archers. Any questions about the, uh, the diagram that you have there? You can pick this up on the Internet, incidentally. Uh, you can browse it. Um, on the internet just by entering a Hiles house and you'll, you'll come up with pictures like this and other pictures as well. Alright, now verse 15 before our break. Nebuchadnezzar takes off some of the poorest of the people. And artisans, who are artisans? Crafts. Craftsmen. Why does he want artisans? Good. Make what? Um, oh, what did Nebuchadnezzar make? How? One of try war materials. But true, but not only that, something very famous. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world. The hanging gardens. Yes, the hanging gardens of Babylon for his wife, his homesick wife. She was sick. For the mountains of the Medes, the Medes in the, the hills or mountain regions uh, east of Assyria, who had also helped uh, conquer the Assyrian Empire along with the Babylonians. But at any rate, that's the story. Uh, it's, it's, of course, a traditional story. Uh, but there is evidence uh, that in Babylon itself there were these gardens So it's not unlikely that there were these uh, beautiful gardens, though they have not been found as yet, or at least any remnants of them have been found. But the story is so well reported, it is generally regarded as true. So he would want craftsmen and artisans of this style to do the kind of work that would build beautiful gardens. Any questions? Take a break. All right, now we're back to verse 16. Now, the mention in verse 16 
of leading vine dressers and plowmen in the land should ring a bell with you in terms of chapter 40, verse 10. Now, you don't need to turn to it, but you may recall that that was Gedaliah's charge to the remnant that was left in Judah when he urged them to work the land and, in fact, uh, told them to bring in the uh, vineyards and the harvest, probably uh, indicating that his own assassination took place somewhere in the fall of 586 B.C. so that he was not governor for more than a few months. That suggestion uh, of placing the timing of that autumn harvest after the destruction of the city. Of course, the vineyards and the fields still would have produced their harvest, at least what hadn't been picked over by the Babylonian army, and get alive with encouraging them to uh, stay and work the land and, of course, survive that way. So this verse here is a corroboration and expansion of that. Now in verse 17, uh, following... We have a description of the temple, beginning with the pillars. Now, you'll notice that it's pillars plural. How many pillars plural were they? Were there? I saw four. Four? Four? Jerry? Two. Two. Yes, there were two. And they even named them, didn't they? What were their names? have heard of naming naming weird things, but see, one called C. Jacob and Boaz. Now the significance of the names, which occurs in 1 Kings 7, <clears throat> significance of the names is unknown. We really don't know what these terms refer to. But nonetheless, the use of pillars at the entrance to a temple is not unusual. Uh, Ancient Near Eastern temples, in many cases, particularly where they've been excavated, show this stylistic device. And so uh, Solomon, uh, though not necessarily copying somebody else, was in tune with what also is common uh, in terms of placing these majestic pillars at the entrance uh, to the temple of the worship of the Lord as others did it for the temple of the worship of their idol gods. Now, in this 17th verse, there's a reference to the bronze sea. What's this bronze sea, or what's this sea refer to? Something to wash the sacrifices in? Yes. What would we what would we call it besides a sea? Bowl. Basin. Big basin. Okay. Pardon? A laver. Yes. A laver. In other words, you get the idea that it's a huge container for water. Probably about ten thousand gallons of water. Probably the estimates of. Uh, the uh, circumference of this uh, item uh, suggests that it was uh, quite quite large. <clears throat> All right, verse 18 mentions shovels. They take away the shovels. Uh, what would you be using shovels for? 
the ashes of the sacrifices, correct, around the altar. Snuffers, what are the snuffers for? Taking out. Put out candles. Yes, for the lamps, for the menorah. Uh, basins, <clears throat> what basins? You can't see it in your English translation. The Hebrew here is actually a little more graphic. Basins for collecting what? The blood, all right, and it's actually called the throw basin or the splash basin. So why would they call it a splash basin or a throw basin? Where the blood would run into? Yes, and then what do they do with it? They throw it out? Yeah, they throw it against the altar, so they splash the altar with it. All right, so this is a basin for collecting the blood of the sacrificial victim and then throwing it or dashing it against the altar, which is one of the reasons that the Hebrew term carries this kind of image of a splash basin or throw basin. Now, the pans here, you'll notice I've said, are incense bowls. These are actually uh, little cups uh, for burning incense. And it's interesting uh, that most... Archaeologists think because of what they've discovered in other other related areas, they think they were shaped like a hand. A little bowl shaped like a hand in which you would place the incense for burning or for perfuming uh, the area. All right, verse 19 I'm sorry, verse 20, the 12 bronze bulls that were under the sea. What are these these bulls doing? Don't they represent the 12 tribes? It's possible that they do represent the 12 tribes, okay? Yes, they're supporting it. So you've got three on a side, okay, north, south, east, west, so to speak. You've got three bulls under the corners of this large bronze basin or uh, uh, laver. Now, verse 21 gives us the dimensions of the pillars taken in Boaz, okay? So, how tall were they? Twenty-four. Eighteen cubits. Eighteen cubits. How much in a cubit? One and a half feet. One and a half feet. Okay. So, how many feet tall? Want to try again, Ben? Twenty-seven feet tall. 27 feet tall. Take half of 18 and add it to 18. <laughs> okay. All right. So, what about the circumference? What's the circumference? Yes. Yeah. 12 cubits, whatever. Yeah, so what's a cubit? Cheryl? 18 inches. 18 inches. Foot and a half is a cubit. So, what's... 12 cubits. What's half of 12? Half of 12 is 6. Plus 12 is? 18. Yeah, so you see a foot and a half is easy to do. You take one, 12, half of it, add it to it. All right, so we have 18 feet in circumference. Okay, so you couldn't get your arms around this. Okay. All right, 
How thick is it? That is, what's the diameter? How do we get the, how do we get the, what's the formula for getting the diameter of a circle? Pi r squared. Pi d, okay? Circumference equals pi d, okay? Well, how do we get the diameter? Yes, we divide both sides of the equation by pi. If we divide by pi here, we get rid of it. If we divide by pi here, then we've got pi underneath the circumference, okay? All right, and that'll give us the diameter, all right? What's pi? 3.146, okay? Okay, and on and on and on, odd infinite item. All right, so we'll take 3.14, and if we divide it, what do we divide 3.14 into? 18. And what do we get? All right, roughly 6, 5 feet 8 inches, <clears throat> more exactly. Interesting little uh, exercise in math here. Uh, <clears throat> so these pillars are almost 6 feet thick, 6 feet through. Are they solid? They are hollow, yes. They could not have cast them in solid bronze because it would have been impossible to move them. Uh, <clears throat> so these are hollow, and yet casting, you know, 27 feet worth of six foot thick bronze, four fingers thick or the bronze going around, you know, four fingers thick, that's what, about three and a half, four inches, maybe a little more? Okay, that's pretty thick bronze circumference. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so, the, although they're hollow, they are by no means light. And <clears throat> where would they have done all this work? Probably out on the plains of the Jordan, where there was enough sand for them to use casting equipment and uh, molds and so on. Probably could not have been done in Jerusalem, so it had to be transported up the ascent of Zion. They had to drag it up the hill. All right. That probably cast them in pieces, that's right. Yeah, or even halves. Uh, that's, a, that's a thought. I hadn't thought about that, Ben. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, now, verse 22, the capital. What's the capital? The good, it's a header. That's a good word, Susan. It's a decorated header. Decorated with what in this case? Uh, pomegranates. Pomegranates. Yes, hundreds of pomegranates decorating these approximately five-foot-tall capitals on top of the pillars of... Uh, Solomon. Any questions then about the architecture of the temple? Ben? Nobody knows again why pomegranates were chosen. Uh, whether it's because they're attractive, uh, you know, they, they look very decorative. Uh, some have suggested it's a reminder of the Garden of Eden. I'm not quite sure about that, but nonetheless, I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, <clears throat> so it's uh, not explained in the scripture, so we're left to speculate about it.
All right, now to verse 24. And Sarea, the chief priest. Sarea is the grandson of Hilkiah, a chief priest. Who was Hilkiah? What did he do? Go ahead, Marge. He was the one who found the scrolls. What scrolls? When they cleaned up the temple, Hilkiah finds what scrolls? First and Second Kings, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. What they find? The Pentateuch. Correct. That's the uh, impression that we get from the text. They discovered the, the law, the scrolls of the Book of Moses, the law of God in the Books of Moses. So, <clears throat> discovering uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy in the rubbish heap in the temple in Josiah's day. And that's Josiah's great reform, approximately 621 B.C., which, of course, is the king who launches the career of Jeremiah, or Jeremiah's career is launched during the rule of Josiah, which means he's part of this reformation, this revival of the uh, pure worship of God that Josiah brings, and Hilkiah, a high priest, is involved, and here is his descending grandson, Sarea, who has the same role. He is a high priest like Hilkiah was. Now, Sarea will have a son named Jehozadak, and he will be exiled to Babylon. What happens to his father? What happens to Sarea? Sounds like he was executed. He's killed. He's executed. All right, so his father is killed, but the son goes off into captivity in Babylon, and he becomes the hereditary high priest during the exilic period. He probably dies in Babylon. His son is the high priest who comes back with the children of Israel when they return under Cyrus's decree. And who is that? Joshua, yes, Joshua. So here you have the line of the priesthood going from Hilkiah to Sarea to Jehozadak to Joshua, who is the restoration. Uh, he appears in the book of Zechariah and the book of Haggai and the book of Ezra as well. All right, now Zephaniah, who is also listed in this 24th verse, it's called the second priest in the New American Standard. That's actually a literal translation of the Hebrew text. He is the second priest. That is, he would be the associate priest, the one next in line. And he too is executed. He's possibly the same Zephaniah who is referred to elsewhere in Jeremiah 29 and 37. And finally, the officers of the temple, or literally the keepers of the door. Now, these keepers of the door were responsible to watch the gates or the doors of the temple. Uh, They were kind of like security patrol. Uh, They had a a responsibility to make sure that the temple was not defiled or desecrated or violated. Uh, These individuals are also uh, executed, along with another person named in verse 25 who is interesting, 
the scribe of the commander of the army. Now, what's his job, this scribe of the commander of the army? He said, go go ahead. I take a guess that he would be recording what happened in battle. No. Notice what it says there in that verse. He musters people of the land. He's a recruiting agent. What would we call him today? No. (laughs) He's a recruiter for what? For the army. For the army. So what would we call him today? A recruiter. From the... From the... When you're 16, you've got to register for what? The draft. In the draft board, right. This is the Judean draft board agency. Sixth century B.C. Okay, here's the scribe that records it. Okay, he's kind of like the conscription agent. Okay, so he too is executed uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. All right, now that brings us to verses 28 to 30, which I mentioned earlier are unique to Jeremiah 52. They do not occur anywhere else in the Bible. And in verse 28, we begin with this seventh year. Now the question is, where's the first year? Six oh five. So whose year are we talking about? <coughs> whose first year is six oh five? Nebuchadnezzar. Very good. All right. So the first year is six oh five BC, which is the first year of Nebuchadnezzar as king of Babylon. Prior to that, he is crown prince with his father Nabopolassar, but his father dies in 605. Actually, when he's laying siege to Jerusalem, he's uh, <clears throat> in that year. He's called back uh, very quickly because he found out his father's died back in Babylon. He has to go back and seize the hands of Bel, the god of Babylon, in order that nobody else will usurp the crown in his place. All right. <clears throat> What's going on in 605 that he's around Jerusalem? He's besieging Jerusalem in 605. Mm-hmm. Who's he going to carry off? Daniel. Daniel. So Daniel's going to go in 605, his first year. All right, so what's this seventh year then? How do we find out? 598. Yeah, 598. Or 97. So the seventh year brings us to what event? This is the first siege, right? This is the second siege, and who goes off in the second siege? Ezekiel. Ezekiel? Who else? Oh, the king. His name is? Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. Yes. And after him. (laughs) All right. Now, verse 29 says the 18th year. So we're subtracting from 605 again. And what's the 18th year? Anyone? 587.86. So what siege are we at now? This is the third siege. And who goes away this time? Everybody plus... King Zedekiah. All right. Now we come to verse 30. 
And this year is the 23rd year. All right, so we go 605 minus 23, and what do we end up with? 582. What siege is this? No siege. Correct. Um, Remember that uh, last time when we were talking about the judgment upon uh, the nations, we mentioned that Josephus has a note uh, from Jewish tradition that Nebuchadnezzar campaigned in the West against the Ammonites and the Edomites and perhaps the Moabites in 582. This verse here could be referring to that event. In other words, it could be that Josephus knows something behind this verse, which corresponds with his comment that Nebuchadnezzar had a campaign in the West at this period, at the, during this time. So uh, we have no corroboration of this from any other document. There's no archaeological uh, uh, document. The Chaldean, the Chronicle of the Chaldean Kings, which we looked at several times, does not refer to this. <clears throat> they leave other things out, so they're not uh, exhaustive. Nor does the scripture refer to us any other place. So we're dependent upon Josephus for a suggestion as to when this occurred. I'm not doubting it. It's here in the scriptures. But nonetheless, the corroboration of it is uh, is only in Josephus. It's not elsewhere in Ezekiel or Chronicles or Kings or uh, anywhere else in inspired scripture. Any questions about that? So even after the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar does come back to the west, uh, subsequently according to this verse and according to Josephus. That brings us to verse 31. The 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim. Right now, what's the year of the exile of Jehoiakim? <coughs> 597. 597. Okay. So 597 is the year of his exile, and this verse says. Um, 37th year. So what year is this? 560. 560, 61 BC. Okay, so we can date these and person referred to here in this verse, evil Merodach, is actually Amol Marduk, who is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. On your handout, you know that he reigns for two years. And the Hebrew word that's translated evil is actually a, uh, a slight upon his Babylonian name, Amol, indicating that he's foolish. He's assassinated by his brother-in-law, Nereglisser, who follows him on the throne of Babylon. But when we uh, subtract 37 from uh, 597, we get into the era that we know from the Babylonian Chronicles is the time of the reign of Amal Marduk, son of Nebuchadnezzar. So this fits uh, the pattern here. 
And to add uh, interest to this, we have a tablet called the Jehoiakim Tablet that was discovered during the excavations of Babylon at the turn of the 20th century between 1897 and 1911. And this tablet was found at the very famous Ishtar Gate, the uh, famous entranceway uh, to the city of Babylon, which has been uh, duplicated. It's in the University of Chicago Museum. It's in the Berlin Museum. Uh, if you go on the Internet, you can dial up Ishtar Gate, and you see a picture of it. It's a beautiful, uh, beautifully designed gate with dragons all over it. Uh, very interesting. But at any rate, at the base of that gate, this little tablet was found, and you have a website there where you can actually take a look at this tablet. And that website has a very good uh, picture of it. It has a very good representation of it. It's actually the tablet itself, but it's a very good photograph of it. And on this tablet, uh, we have a, a, a variation of what you see there on uh, the third page of the handout. Uh, now, uh, the first line there... Two uh, and the name there. I'm going to ask um, Susan to pronounce that name that is there. You're just being cruel. Um, uh, I, I don't know. Very good. Very good. You pronounce the I like a Y, which is precisely how it should be pronounced. What's it sound like? Say it again. Iaukin. Uh, yes, there's Jehoiakim in Akkadian or Babylonian. There it is. So this is a tablet about uh, what kind of ration he was given. Now, if you notice in the second uh, series of lines there, ten silla, two and a half silla, four silla, at the end of that third line, four silla to eight men, now I'm going to ask Cheryl if she'll pronounce that last word, Scylla to eight men from. Do you want to try that, Cheryl? Um. The I like a Y. Okay, I don't see it in this. Um, all I see is. So it was. I A A H U D A A A. He's on the handle. Oh. Oh, she's got something. <laughs> Loretta, go ahead. <laughs> that's, that's what happens when you're a good Samaritan. <laughs> well, I think people over this gentleman's shoulder. Yeah, Yahuda. What's that sound like? Um, Judah. Say it louder, Pete. Judah. Yeah, sounds like Judah, doesn't it? Yeah, Yahuda. Okay? So there's Judah, eight men from Yahudah, Judah. And so uh, as you see this text, which has been translated from the uh, Akkadian, this is a kind of, uh, of a ration uh, 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 appropriation or designation. In other words, uh, this is oil, which would be olive oil probably. Um, uh, <clears throat> this is reference to helpers, etc., uh, so, uh, here is the name Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim in the Babylonian ration tablet, telling us how he was fed during his imprisonment. So it confirms the story of his imprisonment, 
and uh, suggests how uh, he was taken care of. And he was taken care of well, which is also confirmed by uh, the biblical account, whether it's Jeremiah 52 or 2 Kings uh, chapter 25. A cella is about a pint and a half, um, so it's not excessive amount, but it's adequate amount to uh, care for them and provide them with, uh, uh, with uh, at least with the things that are necessary for uh, cooking, etc. <clears throat> All right, so uh, this text can be found... Um, once again on the internet, but I've given you reference to the places where it occurs in uh, collections of uh, archaeological texts, uh, the ancient Near Eastern text, which is one of the most famous compilations of them, <coughs> and uh, a famous uh, British uh, archaeologist, D. Winton Thomas, uh, whose books, uh, book Documents from Old Testament Times is actually a very excellent little handbook uh, to biblical archaeology. <coughs> All right, so you can see from the tablet that Jehoiakim is really in prison in Babylon. And here's his, uh, here's his kind of dietary ration tablet, uh, <clears throat> which confirms that. All right, now, um, <clears throat> what do we do with this concluding chapter? Well, let's look at the paradigm which we've been working on with respect to closure in the prophetic narrative biography of the book of Jeremiah. Let's begin with Ebed-Melech in chapter 39, and if someone will turn to verse 18 in chapter 39, just read it out when you find it. standard it says I will give you your life as booty which in Susan's translation you will escape with your life it means I'll preserve your life so the closure to the narrative of Evid Melech is emphasis upon his life now let's skip down to number three there Baruch and if someone will read uh, chapter 45 verse 5 let's Note the closure to the life of Baruch. The Jew is seeking great things for yourself. The Jew, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them, for behold, I am going to bring disaster on all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give your life to your booty in all the places where you may go. There's the same phrase. I'll give you your life as booty. I'll preserve your life for Baruch. All right, now let's take a look at Jehoiakim, which is in chapter 52 at the end of the chapter. We've been looking at, at that already in terms of his imprisonment. And in verse 34, something I've mentioned already, the last word in this verse in the Hebrew text is what? It's life. It's the same in 2 Kings 25, verse 30. The last word in the text of 2 Kings is life. The last word in the book of Jeremiah is life. The last word for Baruch is life. The last word for Evid Melech is life. <clears throat> Which brings us then to Jeremiah, whom I skipped over. Notice the sequence. <clears throat> 
With Evid Melech, it's life. With Baruch, it's life. With Jehoiakim, it's life. What is it with Jeremiah? It's life as well, yes. It's life where? Where is he? He is in Egypt. He is in Egypt. All right, now let's follow that, right? Looking at Jeremiah, he's alive in Egypt at the close of his biographical section in chapter 44. His narrative biography ends where Israel's redemptive history begins. It ends in Egypt. And from there, Israel's redemptive history will begin anew when the eschatological Jeremiah will descend into Egypt and emerge bringing the eschatological exodus for the Israel of God of the end of the age. And how do we know that? We know it from Matthew 2.15. In Matthew 2.15, as Jesus comes up out of Egypt, the prophetic verse from the book of Hosea is uh, rehearsed, out of Egypt have I called my son. Notice the paradigm that we've traced out. The closure to the life of Jeremiah is a closure which ends in Egypt and will resume when the eschatological Jeremiah ascends out of Egypt, having descended to the place where Israel's redemptive history began in an exodus. He will descend and ascend out of Egypt, have I called my son, in a new eschatological exodus. All right, so Matthew is focusing upon that pattern in which Egypt and the presence of God's final prophet in Egypt descending and ascending is recapitulating that which Jeremiah himself enters into in his own narrative and which Israel all the way back in Exodus 12 enters into. What about Jehoiakim? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. The first 17 verses of the Gospel of Matthew are the genealogy of Christ. And you'll notice that that genealogy is broken down into three separate sections. From Abraham to David, from David to the exile, and from the exile to Christ. Notice verses 11 and 12. And to Josiah were born Jeconiah. Who's Jeconiah? Okay. Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. That's his other name. Very good. And his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Shealtiel, and to Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, etc. Until we come to? To Jesus Christ. So Matthew is tracing the lineage of Christ through the tribe of Judah here, which means through the tribe of the kings of Judah, which is the tribe of Jehoiakim. The life of Jehoiakim is preserved because that life is itself a projection of the life of the king of kings of the kings of Judah, namely the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So... Jeremiah chapter 52, at its end, 
with Jehoiakim being raised up out of prison and given his life in freedom is driving us to Matthew chapter 1. Because Matthew is driving us in the opening of his gospel back to the history of redemption, which includes Jehoiakim and includes the descent of the Israel of God into Egypt, out of which that Israel of God will emerge and bring you into the exodus of the end of the age. The narrative closure of the book of Jeremiah is a consistent reduplication and repetition of the motif of life. 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 These major characters, Ebed Melech, Baruch, Jehoiakim, Jeremiah himself, given life. In the face of a book which has described death in all of its fury and the judgment of God in all of its wrath, leaves you with its final word. It is life and not death. It is Christ and his life and not death. It is Christ and life out of death. That is the relationship between the protological and the eschatological Jeremiah. Any questions or comments? And so we end the book. And I trust you've enjoyed the experience of working through it as much as I have. A book which I have never attacked before. And I thank you for the opportunity to do it. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed at your revelation, amazed at your orchestration of history, amazed at the life of Jeremiah, which is in its own way an anticipation of the life of Christ, a prophet of the Lord, a messenger of the word of God. A man rejected by his own. A man who weeps over Jerusalem. A man who endures persecution, beating, ostracism, and rejection. A man who is despised, even by his own. And yet, a man who is faithful to the word of the Lord, and projects a new covenant. A new covenant in the blood of one who will take away once and for all the sins of Jeremiah and the sins of the people of God. We thank you for that eschatological Jeremiah, your dear son. And we thank you for the opportunity to follow his life in measure as we've unfolded the life of Jeremiah. Bless us richly, O Lord, with the confidence and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
bless us with his life in our life. Bless us with the wonder of his grace in our miserable, sinful selves. And to your name and to his name be all the praise and glory. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Have a good summer, y'all. You're welcome. My pleasure.